0: Good Easter Sunday morning to you, the Baptist Church family. Uh, we welcome you uh, to our Easter sunrise service. Uh, for those of you who are joining us, not a part of our church family, we welcome you also. We're glad that you are joining us on this very special, this very odd Lord's Day. We are gathering via technology, but we are still gathering under the Word. We are still rising to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to begin this morning by sharing with you from Mark chapter 16, where we read these words. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam bought spices, so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, "Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. That's the reason we gather today." It's the Regent Church, we gather every single Sunday morning to celebrate those words. He has risen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you on this Easter Sunday morning. We praise you, O oh God, that you are in fact risen from the dead. Lord, we remember with great sorrow, with great mourning, that you died on the cross on Friday, that you were crucified, that you were. But Lord, today, with great hope, with eternal, unfading, unyielding hope, we celebrate that you are alive, that you are not in the grave, that you have risen, you have conquered death, and because of that, King Jesus, salvation is open to all. So Lord, as we gather in our homes, we gather in front of screens, we pray, O Lord, that you would be blessed and honored as we make much of your name on this day. Amen. Now, we invite you in your homes to participate in worship with us this morning. Our own Steve and TJ Evans are going to lead us in hymns of praise. So if you want to sit and sing, if you want to stand and sing, we invite you to join with us now.
1: Good morning, Teresa family. Join us now as we sing a hymn of praise in Christ the In Christ alone my hope is found, He is my life, my strength, my soul, His cornerstone, His solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are still, when striving cease, my confidence, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, voice of God in helpless faith, his gift of love and righteousness, stored by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for Every sin upon you must lay. Here in the death of Christ I live. Here in the ground, his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave He rose again. And as He stands in victory. since curse has lost its grip on me. For I am His and He is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ No guilt in life, no fear in death This is the power of Christ in me from life's prescribed to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. Now, if you'll join us in singing a hymn of praise when I survey the wondrous cross. saving the death of Christ my God. All the great things that shot me most, I sacrifice him to his blood. See, To speak. so
0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we will be this morning. We're going to step out of our study of Mark's gospel, and we're going to focus in on a text that really brings into clarity the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. If you've got your notes in front of you, you see that the main idea this morning is that the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection saves us from sin and changes us. To two go hand in hand. He saves us from sin, and in saving us, He changes us. In the text that we will read in just a few moments, we'll see Paul explain the objective truth of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's objective, it's complete, it's unchanging, and then he's going to take that and move to our subjective experiences of the gospel. He's going to look at how the gospel affects us as men and women before God. And so, those two things, the objective truth of the gospel and our experience of the gospel, Paul is pushing us to ask the question is this me? Is what he says in this text true of me? You see, he gives us two great arguments for the truth of Jesus' resurrection. He says, don't miss the scriptures. He said Jesus' death and His resurrection are not somehow new to the Bible. They're the culmination of the whole Bible. But then he says the second great evidence, the second great argument for, for the, the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fact that people change. That Jesus takes sinners, sets them free from sin, and they become new. So if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll only read the first three verses. Paul writes, "Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ." died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray together. Lord, it's good to be under the hearing of Your Word. On this day, Father, we have gathered to celebrate the fact that You died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that you were buried and that you were raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Lord, as the saints have gathered for 2,000 years to celebrate this fact, we gather today. We gather today, Easter Sunday morning, 2020, to celebrate the unchanging fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Lord, help us to see the beautiful and wonderful things in your word this day. We pray it in your holy name. Amen. Well, follow along in your notes if you have them there in front of you. If not, you're welcome to listen along. But the first thing I want us to see is the most important message in the world. Paul is telling us here the single most important message in the world. Now, I'm going to go through this text backwards. I'm going to start with, verses 3 and 4, and then I'm going to go back and hit verses 1 and 2, and hopefully that will become clear as to why I'm doing it that way towards the end. But I want us to see in verses 3 and 4 the most important message in the world, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in verse 3 that he's delivering to the Corinthians what he also received. Now keep in mind, this letter was originally written to the Corinthian church in Corinth, And so he's telling them, what I came and preached to you, the gospel that I delivered to you, is the same gospel, Paul says, that I received. And we don't have time this morning, but if you were to flip to Acts chapter 9, you would read about Paul's conversion story when Jesus came to him and and blinded him and made known to him the gospel of salvation. Paul says, "I'm, I'm doing what Christ did for us. I'm doing the same thing with you. I'm passing along what I also received which is our job as followers of Jesus Christ, that we pass along that which we have received. Paul has devoted his life to passing on that which he has received. All of Paul's life now is devoted to the preaching, to the spreading, to the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying, as I said earlier, is objective. It's complete it's final. It's been delivered in its final form. Jude says it this way in Jude verse 3. It's only one chapter. In Jude verse 3, Jude says it's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For Jude, it's this complete body of belief. It's all that we need for life and godliness. In this word, the apostles say, are all that's necessary for us to know God for us to know how to be saved, and for us to live a life of faith. Another pastor calls it the primitive, essential Christian message. Now, we live in a world where there are many denominations, there are many practices of church, there are many different cultures around the world, but what's essential to the true church is this message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Price. And as I said in my prayer, this is what the saints have celebrated together for over 2,000 years. Well, let's look at these individually for just a moment. Verse 3, he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, Christ died for our sins. He did that because we are sinful. The Bible tells us that. Paul tells us that in Romans 3, that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In that because we have sinned against God, we owe God a sin debt. The only sin debt that I can pay to God is my own death. And yet, Paul tells us here that because of that, Christ has died for our sins. Because I was in need of rescue, Christ has come that He might rescue all those who believe. But don't miss what he says at the end of that sentence. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. So what Paul's saying is this act of Jesus Christ is firmly rooted in the whole Bible. It's the message of the entire Bible. I want to show you that for the next few moments as to how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is rooted in the whole message of the Bible. In Luke 24, it says, After the resurrection has occurred, there are two men on the road to a town called Emmaus. And if I could go back and hear any sermon in history, this is the sermon that I would hear. Because on the road to Emmaus, it tells us that Jesus comes alongside of them, and he keeps them from from recognizing him. And they're talking about what's going on. They said there's this guy who we thought was the Messiah, and yet he was crucified, and he's in the tomb. And Jesus says to them in Luke 24, verse 25, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then listen to this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He, that is Jesus, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. That must have been quite a long walk because all the scriptures are about Jesus Christ. Well, in Genesis 22, we find the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. God calls him to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise, and so Abraham is obediently following through. And on the way up the mountain, Isaac says, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham tells his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And they get to the top of the mountain and Isaac is bound upon the altar and then God speaks and tells Abraham, do not sacrifice your son. And it tells us that Abraham lifted up his eyes and there was a sacrifice that God himself had provided, a ram. And so Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. And he says, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So look forward to what would come. Abraham sacrificing his own son was just a picture of what God himself would do on the mountain. That God would ultimately sacrifice his own son. Well, we see later on in Psalm 22, we read what's called the crucifixion Song. You see, on the cross, Jesus quoted from Psalm 22, We read in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read in verse 7, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their head. They say, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Psalm 22, verse 14, When poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint." Verse 16, They have pierced my hands in feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, Psalm 22 is about the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, we find a passage about the crucifixion of our Lord. It tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 2, that Jesus grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, or no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Later on in the chapter, in verse 10, we read, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You see, God ultimately put Jesus on that cross for the salvation of sinners. Well, we read, later in the book of Hosea about what Paul says about Jesus being buried. But He was buried according to the Scriptures because we read in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, after two days He will revive us and on the third day He will raise us up. See, Hosea was looking past what he saw to the coming resurrection of Jesus Christ when he said on the third day He will raise us Well, another scriptural reference for Jesus' burial is the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, because Jesus says that he would provide for them the sign of Jonah. Because when Jonah was thrown overboard, if you know the story, he was swallowed by a great fish. And if we read the text, it seems very clear that Jonah dies in the belly of that fish. And then God brings him back to life. He restores him back to life. And it was a picture of what was to come when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would die on that cross. That he would be buried in the tomb as Jonah was buried in the fish. Jesus would be buried in the earth according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. And then Paul writes that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, in going back to Genesis 22, when Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice him, we know what Abraham was thinking. Because later in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer tells us that Abraham was prepared to receive Isaac back from the dead. He knew that if the son of promise, if, if, if Isaac was the son of promise that God had given, even if he died, God could restore him. Which looks to the day when Jesus Christ, the promised one of God, died, the Bible had already given such a clear picture that he would be restored to life. And so Paul says with clarity, Paul says with authority, Paul says with joy that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, he was buried, and he was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Sin separates us from God. The Bible tells us that. Christ died as the sacrifice for our sins. The Bible tells us that. That He died in our place. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that God made Christ to be sin. Even though he had no sin of his own, God made him to be sin on the cross. That we, that is, those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ for faith, through faith, that is, that we might become Christ righteousness, because he died for sin, he was buried, and he was raised. Now, Paul tells us this message, he tells us what he had received, he's passing it along to us and saying that the gospel message does something. It does something in our lives. It makes us new. It, trans- it transforms us. You see, Romans 10 tells us that the gospel is for all, for any who would believe. And yet the Bible also says that the gospel only transforms those who truly believe and follow Jesus, which leads us to the second point, which is back up in verse 1, the gospel on which you have taken your stand. The gospel on or upon which you have taken your stand. He says back up in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Now, it's important here to evaluate the the, the the grammar that Paul uses, to look at the actual Greek words and the tenses that he uses because they're important. He says, in which you stand, which in the Greek is a perfect, active, indicative verb. It's a phrase, which doesn't mean a whole lot unless we understand that those grammatical markers mean that Paul is saying something that you are doing because of something that has been done. And so Paul, what Paul is saying is, you're standing in the gospel, you're standing upon the gospel because of something that has been done in the past. What's true of you today, Christian, is true because of something that happened in the past. The biblical significance of this is what Paul is saying is God did something in our lives that has an effect today. God has done something in the past, something objective, something true, something final and complete. And so what God has done is having a present-day effect. If we are standing in the gospel, it's because of what God has done. And here, what we see is that Paul is talking about the doctrine of justification. That's a big word, and I want to explain what it means because it's an important biblical word. The doctrine of justification means this. The Christian's union with Christ is the the fountain out of which every spiritual blessing flows. The immediate result of that union is God's free gift of justification, by which he declares believers to be righteous because of their union with the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That when God justifies us, He is making a final authoritative declaration that we are righteous because of Jesus. Now, I struggle with this from time to time, and I've got a helpful quote that helped me make sense of it, and it comes from an old monk named Martin Luther, because Luther said it this way, Though I am black and dark and still sinful, God regards me as righteous. Though I'm black and dark and still sinful, God has has stated with authority that I'm righteous. Which means that my sin doesn't necessarily go away all at once. It doesn't mean that I stop struggling with sin. But what it does mean is that when God thinks about me, if I am in Christ, He thinks about Jesus Christ's righteousness. And as Luther says, though I'm black and dark and still sinful, God treats me as if I own all of Jesus' righteousness. You see, when a believer comes to faith, when we are justified in God's sight, God always sanctifies us. That's another word, sanctification. I'll define it in just a moment. But the point is, I want us to see, is that when we are justified in God's sight, when we are saved through Jesus Christ, we are always changed. There's not a I am saved, but I have not yet changed. That's not a biblical idea. That's not what the gospel message says. That when God justifies us in Jesus Christ, he changes us to be like Jesus Christ, which leads us to the point number three the gospel by which you are being saved. The gospel by which you are being saved. He writes this in verse two by which you are being saved. Some of your versions may say, by which you are saved. Now here again, it's important to evaluate the grammar of what Paul has written. The phrase, you are being saved, is what's called a present passive indicative, which again, doesn't mean a whole lot unless we understand what it actually means to us and what it does to the language itself. Here's what it means. It means an action in process. Whereas what he said about justification meant something done in the past, when Paul says "by which you are being saved," he means something. He means something that's ongoing right now. Something that's happening in our lives right now. It's an action in process, but also it means that I'm being acted upon. Being, something's being done to me. Somebody's doing something to me. And Paul's saying, this is a fact. It's not up for debate. It's not up to our opinions. He's saying something is being done to you, Christian, and it's being done to you by God himself. And let's not miss the last part. It's a second-person plural. Now why does that matter. Here's how that would translate in today's language. Y'all. You all. In verse 2, it says, by which you all are being saved. Because what Paul is saying is he's talking to the church, not just us as individuals. He's talking to the whole church. that what Christ is doing in you, Christ is doing in me, Christ is doing in us. That is the single most important fact in any of our lives. It's the single most central fact that binds us together as the church that Christ is right now working the gospel in us. So let me define the doctrine of sanctification. It means that God the Holy Spirit is working to separate the believer unto himself. Now, he's separating the Christian from the non-Christian. God is separating us unto Himself by making us increasingly holy. Making us increasingly holy. Progressively transforming us into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit works in us to help us subdue our sin. That means fight against our sin. Stop sinning in some ways. Becoming more aware that we sin in other ways. The Holy Spirit helps us fight against sin while also bearing more fruit of Christ's righteousness. So sanctification is, it has two parts. Moving away from sin, moving towards righteousness. It's the process where holiness is worked into us by means of the Word of God through prayer, through life-changing discipleship, through fasting, and through other things. And as I said a moment ago, when God justifies us, He never fails to sanctify us. Or to, to say it differently, if Christ is not Lord of our lives, sanctifying us, how can He become our Savior? If we are not changing, if we are not growing to be more like Christ day in and day out, month after month, year after year, if we are not changing to be more like Him, Paul saying that's evidence that He never was your Lord. thus you never were saved. You see, God cannot accidentally justify someone who will never be sanctified. God doesn't say, I'll justify you, now you go and do the work of sanctification. Because that's, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that God justifies us and does the work of changing us. So, how does sanctification work? How does that being changed, how does that being saved Work. Well, David Pallison, who is a fantastic biblical counselor, lists five things that God uses to transform and save his people. Five things that grow us in Christ's likeness. The first one is God Himself. God Himself changes us. We read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That means God. God who started the work of salvation in you by justifying you will bring it to completion, that means He is sanctifying us, at the day of Jesus Christ. So God Himself changes us. A second thing he notes is that the Word of God, Scripture, truth itself, changes us. 2 Timothy 3.16, we read the words, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then Paul says that we might be mature. Well, a third thing that changes us is wise people, other Christians that can point us to God, that can give us the Word of God. In Colossians 1, Paul says, we labor and we toil to present everyone mature in Christ. You know what that means? That means that I have a responsibility to make sure you are maturing in Jesus Christ. I have a responsibility to give you the Word of God so that I might present you mature and complete. That you have the responsibility for me. We, remember what Paul said, you all, we have the responsibility to help each other grow in Christ's likeness." Well, a fourth thing that helps us to grow is suffering and struggle. God uses suffering in our lives. God brings hardships into our lives to help us grow. We've seen that over the last few weeks from Mark's gospel, from our study in Judges and in Ruth. We've seen, the Bible says very clearly, God uses struggle in our lives to help us grow. In Psalm 119, verse 67, the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. And his point is that before I faced these hardships, I was living for myself. I wasn't following God. But through the hardship, he says, the Lord brought me back to himself. So the the Lord Jesus suffering and struggle. But lastly, lastly, we take. We are agents of change in our own lives. We have a responsibility to take up the Word of God and read it. We have the responsibility to pray and to fast and to seek God's faith. In Psalm 19, verse 14, we read the words, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's a personal aspect of this, where the Lord expects us having been changed to walk in faithfulness. That's how sanctification works. That because what God has done gives way to what God is doing, and there are evidences of what God is doing in our lives. There are ways to know whether we are growing in Christ or not. And I want to give you five evidences of whether sanctification is or is not occurring in our lives. The first one is this: that we have a fixed concentration on the things of Christ. If we are if we are being sanctified, then I will have a concentration on the things of Christ. It won't be perfect, and it will grow as I grow in Christ. But I will be concentrated on the things of Jesus Christ: on His Word, on His on, on prayer, on being, on going with the gospel, on doing what Paul is doing, delivering to others what's been entrusted to us. But you see, if sanctification is not happening in my life, I will lack a concentration to the things of Christ. Jesus won't be my focus. He won't be what's central in my life. Well, the second thing is that if sanctification is occurring, I will have an appetite for the meaty things of the faith. I'll have an appetite to be growing in my knowledge of Christ, in my knowledge of His Word, in my applying of His Word to my life, of evaluating my own life in view of Scripture? The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 says, "Uh, you guys should be on to the more meaty things of the faith, but you're still taking a bottle like babies. There's an expectation that we grow in maturity, that we grow and move on to the meaty things of the faith. But if sanctification is not happening, we'll have no appetite for the rich, meaty things of the faith. We'll have no appetite for those things we find that we will indulge ourselves on worldly things and not godly things. Rather, if we are being sanctified, we will indulge ourselves more and more so on heavenly things. And we will understand that the world holds nothing for us. We will say with the psalmist in Psalm 16 that there are infinite pleasures in the right hand of God nowhere else. Well, a third thing, a third evidence of sanctification is that you are growing in Christian discernment. That we're growing in our Christian discernment, meaning we can discern between what's good and bad. We can discern best from better. We can discern important from insignificant. We can discern between permanent and transient or already passing away. See, the Bible helps us to see those things, but if I'm not being sanctified... I will lack that. I won't be able to tell between good and bad. I won't discern much between better and best. I won't be able to tell what's important and what's insignificant. And I won't be able to tell between what's permanent and what's passing away. A fourth evidence of sanctification is worship. A Christian who is growing in Christ's likeness has strong worship. But one who is not growing in Christ has weak worship. And I don't just mean singing. I mean the way in which we live. The way we approach God to give Him honor and glory and praise says something about us. If you are cold and your mind is distant and you are not engaging with the Holy Spirit when you come to worship, if that's your regular pattern of worship, then sanctification may not be happening in your life. The fifth thing is safety. The Christian who's being sanctified feels safe because they know, as Paul says in Colossians 3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. But for those who are not being sanctified, you are in grave danger because you have no hope because Christ is our only hope. That leads us to our reflection and application as Paul says in verse 2. He says, unless you believed in vain. He says, the gospel on which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe in vain. I want to spend the next, these last few moments asking two questions. Based on what we have heard this morning, I want to ask this question. Are you holding fast to the truth and the power of the gospel? Are you holding fast To the truth that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Are you holding fast to that? That means are you standing upon it? Is it true in your life? Are you growing in Christ's likeness? Are the evidences of sanctification present in your life? Do you recognize the the five things that God uses to work salvation in our lives? Do you see those things in your life? You see, a mark of true faith is that we hold fast to the gospel and are being changed. That we are being changed. It's an ongoing thing. We'll never stop being changed until we get to Him. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that it's God who saves us and it is God who holds us fast. Here, we are encouraged to hold fast ourselves. He says, if you hold fast. But in Romans 8, Paul says it's God who holds you fast. So what we see is that Paul is not at odds with himself. Paul is helping us to see the clear picture, which is this. If we hold fast and persevere in faith, we are both holding fast and being held by God. And the more we grow in our faith, the more we realize God has a much tighter grip on me than I do on him. And that's a good As God has shown, if I'm holding fast to the gospel, the gospel will be changing me. I will be growing in Christ's likeness. I can look back and say, "That's who I was," and I can see how God is changing me. I can see how I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. For some, it'll be more than others, and that's okay. But you see, the Christian can say, "I can see how God is changing." But what if what if you are thinking? What if I believe the gospel, but it's not changing? Well, then I want you to ask this question. Have I truly believed the gospel? Because Paul says it very clearly, that the gospel of, of, of Christ, the gospel of salvation, is salvation from sin and being changed to be more like Him. Have I believed the gospel? Have I believed in You see, the Bible tells us there is saving faith. And there is vain faith. Or non-saving faith. There are some who are holding fast, no doubt. They are holding fast. But they are holding fast to their own belief rather than holding fast to what Christ has done. They're holding on to their own faith. For example, they might be saying, I'm saved because I believe. Or, I'm saved because I do religious things. Like, I go to church, I I give money, I pray, I do this, that, and the other. Therefore, I'm saved. Well, they might say, I'm saved because I professed faith one time and walked the aisle and was baptized one time. Looking back, that means I'm saved. But you see, a mark of vain faith is a lack of ongoing commitment to the gospel. A lack of visible life change. And so if you're hoping in something that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago and you're still the same person, friend, I would encourage you, I plead with you to hear the truth of the gospel that God saves and God changes. Does Jesus talk about vain faith? Does Jesus himself talk about non-saving faith? He does. He talks about it in Mark chapter 4 with the bad soils. He said, the seed was scattered and it fell on all kinds of soils and yet only one took. He talks about it in Matthew 13. He says, there will be tares in amongst the wheat. There will be people who think that they are Christians, who are among Christians, and they aren't. He talks about it in Matthew 13, 47 through 50, with the bad fish and with the good. He said, when you cast the net and you catch fish, some will be good, and yet some will be bad. He talks about it in Matthew 7, houses without foundations. He says, some of you will build your houses upon the sand, and the wind will blow, the rain will come, and the house will fall and break it says again in Matthew 7, there will be those on the last day who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do great works in your name? And Jesus says, I will to them. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about virgins without oil. That Jesus comes back and there are the virgins who thought they were prepared to receive their groom and yet they had no oil in their lamp. And the, 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 the point of the parable is to say, There will be people who think they are Christians and when Jesus returns, they will find out very starkly that they are not. He talks about it in Matthew 25 also, the servants who waste their talents. He talks about it in Matthew 7. He says that there are gates and there are paths that seem right and yet they lead to destruction. So I, I, Plead with you today. See to it that you have not believed in vain. The whole reason we are celebrating Easter Sunday morning is the fact that Christ has died for our sins, that He was He was He was put on the cross in our place, that He was buried, and that He was raised to life, that we might have faith in Him. In His promise to you and to me, is that when we believe and follow. Not only are we saved, we are set on a course to be changed, to be made like Him. See to it, brother, sister. See to it, friend, that we have not believed in vain. I want to close with a prayer from Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, we read these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, any wicked way in me. See if it be there, Lord, and lead me in the way everlasting. See, what the psalmist says is, Lord, search me. Help me to see clearly that I might follow Lord, we praise You that You are the sacrifice for sin, that You went to the cross, that You died in our place, that You were buried in the earth, and now You are resurrected to life. And because of that, King Jesus, we have the hope of salvation from sin and from death. And God, we praise You. We praise You that You are our salvation from sin. But Lord, we also see with great clarity that when we are saved, we are also changed. So help us, Lord, not to be content with hearing the gospel. Help us, Lord, to search our hearts, to see if there be any wicked way in us. And our prayer together, Father, is that you would lead us in the way everlasting. We pray all of this in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ.
1: Please join us now in singing Doxology, and we will sing three points Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above, the heavenly hosts. Praise God, the Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.